Welcome to the Husband Material Podcast, where we help Christian men outgrow porn. Why? So you can change your brain, heal your heart, and save your relationship. My name is Drew Boa, and I'm here to show you how. Let's go. Even though I'm still healing from COVID and I'm feeling a little down, I am still incredibly excited to start this episode, the first in a new series that we are doing on healing from sexual abuse. And the reason for that is because I've identified this as one of the most important underestimated issues that is underneath attachment to porn. It is so, so, so much more common. It is so, so, so much more influential than we realize. And it's also often invisible, which is why today's question is so important. Was I sexually abused? And with us to help answer this question is my friend, my beloved brother, Dr. Doug Carpenter. Welcome, Doug. Thank you. It's great to be here again, be with you and to be talking to husband material. Absolutely. And you're even a moderator now helping us to lead this community. I am. I love this community. And I, it's a, one of my great joys in life to be able to serve as a moderator and, and to just get to know everybody and help people along their journey. And even more than that, when it comes to this topic of sexual abuse, you have published a new book, which I have now read, and it's amazing. Thank you. And it's called Secret Shame. A Survivor's Guide to Male Sexual Abuse. Yes. This book is now available, and we're doing a little giveaway inside the Husband Material community. Yes, we are. So, yeah, respond to what's in Husband Material, and we will be happy to give some books away. Yeah, so join the Husband Material community at husbandmaterial.com, and... Once you're inside, you will see the post where you can sign up to get a chance to win one of these books. And even if you don't win, you can still buy it at a link in the show notes. Here's a quote from the beginning of the book, Secret Shame. If you are a male who has been sexually abused and has never disclosed your story, felt emotionally and physically defective, felt your masculinity has been compromised, questioned your sexuality, repeated your sexual abuse with others in childhood or adulthood, if you've acted out sexually with other men, if you're isolated from emotional and sexual relationships, if you've turned to sexual compulsivity and promiscuity, if you've suffered from abuse-related sexual dysfunction, or if you have carried secret sexual shame, this was written for you. I just loved that little part of it. That's my heart. That is my heart right there, written on those pages. Now, one of the assumptions of this episode, even asking the question, was I sexually abused, is the idea that it matters. So Doug, why does it matter if I was sexually abused? What's the point of asking that question? Well, it matters a lot. I mean, this is a topic that's very dear to my heart and has been for years. I did my doctoral dissertation on this topic. So it's been something I, it's been very close to my heart. Um, The APA, the American Psychological Association, uh, published some information a few years ago that of men who've been sexually abused, 60% of men have lasting effects from the abuse that show up in their lives in some manner. 40% don't, you know, so I definitely don't want to send the message today that if you were sexually abused, then you've got to have something wrong with you. That's not the case. 40% of men 
don't have effects, but 60% do, and 60% is a huge number that it affects your life in some way. It can affect your relationships with other people. It can affect the way you, you parent. It can affect how you develop sexually, which is something I talk about three or four chapters in the book is the impact on your own sexual development. It has a high propensity to lead to pornography use and sexually acting out. There's just a host of ways that it, it can impact a man's life. Um, one of the major ways that the research shows that it can impact your life is that it, number one, makes a, a male question their own sexuality because it's so confusing to a boy. You know, us men are different than little girls. You know, boys are different than little girls. Our genitalia are external. And we see them respond. We feel them react. When you stimulate them, it's something that your body responds to. And so then that causes so much confusion in the mind of little boys and teenagers. And then as they grow up to be men, and then they're confused about why did my body respond? How did I get myself in this? Why didn't I fight to get out? And then we write, we write all these false narratives in our head. And those false narratives then lead us potentially in some people to act out sexually, to turn to porn. So there's all kinds of effects. So it's important that we ask this question. Statistics show that one in six boys have some kind of sexual encounter by the, by the age of 18 that would be considered abuse. You know, it's one in three girls, one in six boys. And we believe that that number for boys is probably inaccurate because there were three large studies that showed men waited anywhere from 23 to 26 years before they ever told anyone that this happened to them. And, and what is just the impact of carrying a shame-loaded secret for a quarter of a century. What does that do to the minds of a boy, to a teenager, to a man? So this is important. It's important to ask this question. And if you're one of these people, then to lean into that and start inquiring about that within yourself. Yeah, if you're asking that question, was I sexually abused? First of all, how brave of you? How brave? Yes. And how important. You are not wasting your time by asking that question. Not at all. This is about getting a true narrative, or at least a narrative worth living, rather than the false narratives that we tell ourselves. Yes, because this topic is full of false narratives. I mean, we we could do just a whole show around the false narratives that men tell themselves in relation to abuse. You know, and, and I find this topic so fascinating because we can deceive ourselves so much around this because society tells us as men, we should like sex. You know, in some of my research, like the Jamaican culture, whether your first sexual encounters were forced upon you or you consented to them, which that's a whole nother area that we, we could get into and debate, but that you're supposed to 
accept them openly and see them as initiation and, and receive that in a proud manner. You're asking a child then to accept trauma with some sense of pride. Mm. And so there, there are a lot of cultural values around this topic um, that different men need, need to explore, but it, but it is important to ask yourself this question, this question and to grapple with this. And it can be so deceiving. Um, I know for myself, um, I had some issues in my childhood and my adolescence with sexual abuse. And it wasn't until my mid forties that I really started thinking those were sexual abuse. Those things that I lived through were sexual abuse. And throughout my life, I had signs of being sexually abused and, and, but I always told myself that I wasn't. And the more I started researching this topic, working with men, writing about it, I started to explore my own experiences. Um, and I'd like to share those with you all today. So that way, you know, you can hear my story and have an understanding of that too. Um, when I was little, I um, spent a lot of time at my paternal grandmother's house. Um, and she lived near a park and she it was, you know, that we're talking 47 years ago, <laughs> a long time ago now, I'm getting up there in age, um, where it was pretty safe to run around. So like as a five-year-old, I could go across the street and go to the park and play. And it, it was no big deal back then. But what happened was there was a girl down the street who was like four or five years older than I was. And when I would go to the park, we would play together and she would always ask to see my penis. And so me being kind of innocent and naive would let her see it. And it progressed to her wanting to touch it. So I let her touch it. And I remember, I think I was five and she was nine. And in one time she said to me, now, granted, I didn't understand any of this then. It wasn't until much years later that I realized what must have been going on. But she said to me, do you know that if I touch this for long enough or pull on this, that white stuff will come out? And I was like, no, I, I, I don't know anything about that. You know, I was clueless. Now, looking back at nine years old, she had to have been being sexually abused. Or she was being heavily exposed to pornography in some way. You know, back then it would have been like videos, I assume. Um, to even know that that occurred with a man. And then for her to think that she could do that to a young boy. You know, so she was repeating some kind of trauma that had happened to her with me. And, you know, I, as I grew, I really didn't think about that being sexual abuse. But I know that I had a lot of questions around sex, sexuality starting at a very young age. And so that awakened something within me to start questioning, thinking about being curious about, even though I grew up in a pretty strict Christian home and I was pretty naive. And then when I was about 11 or 12, um, I really didn't have many male friends at school. Um, and I, this, this other boy 
befriended me and and he was kind of a nerdy engineering type kid real into math and science and um i kind of wasn't but we became friends and i started going over to his house and when i would go to his house and i'm not talking like a slum place this was this guy this kid lived in a nice house his dad owned the lumber yard in town they had money um but his dad had playboy magazines everywhere they were in the bathroom they were on the coffee table they were on the end tables they were on the poker table downstairs i mean they were everywhere and his mom was there and it was like nothing and so naturally, when his parents would be gone, he and I would just grab magazines and sit down and start looking at them. Um, and then at one point when I was spending the night, during the night, he said, I want to show you something. And he started fondling me and touching me. And he, he did ask me, can, can I touch you? And I said, yes, not really understanding what was going to happen. And that night was the first time I ever had an orgasm. And I had no idea what that was. It really scared me. I felt very out of control of my body. Um, yeah, it, it frightened me. I didn't know if there was something wrong with me. I didn't know if he had hurt me in some way. Like it was very, very, very confusing. You know, and some people will say, well, isn't that just sex play curiosity? Yes, on some level, it is. Experimentation. Experimentation. I think that the problem is there. I think on one level, we were both being sexually abused through non-contact abuse by his dad just leaving this pornography everywhere and exposing us at such young, young ages to explicit sexual material. So in some ways we were both being abused, but then, you know, when, when two people in similar ages, something like this happens, if one person has more knowledge than the other person, that in and of itself can be abuse. Now in this situation, I don't know that he, had more direct knowledge. Um, he had more exposure to the pornography than I did. I think what was significant there for me was that I just had no idea what was happening. And so that became traumatic for me that that happened. I can't even say that it felt good the first time because I was so afraid of what my body was going to do. I mean, I started shaking. You could build, I, the intensity was building and I just didn't know what was going to happen. And then when it happened, I was like, I, I don't know what this is. So it was so overwhelming. It was very overwhelming. It was emotionally overwhelming. I was gripped with fear um, versus a sense of pleasure. But over the next few days, I spent naturally a lot of time thinking about what had happened. And I thought, this has to be sperm. Like, this has to be what I've learned about in biology class. Like, I, I don't know what else this could be because I'm fine. But I, I don't really know what happened. This stuff came out of my body, but I'm fine. 
but I'm fine. But it felt so weird and I was so scared. And so then I thought, can I make that happen on my own if I do what he did to me? And so I went in the bathroom and I did and I made it happen and it did feel good this time. And so I was like, this has to be what it is. You know, I, I think where another trauma layer of trauma came in for me with that was I started masturbating every day from that point forward. But because I was raised in such a strong religious environment, I knew that it was sinful if you thought about a girl in some kind of lustful way. So for probably the first, I don't even know how long of my masturbation habits were all done to fantasies of what he did to me, Hmm. which then led to a lot of sexual confusion and identity issues as an adolescent. Cause I, in some ways, I feel like I almost abused myself that I conditioned my brain and my body to respond to another boy because I just started replicating what he did to me. And so, you know, my story may be very different than other people's story of abuse. You know, a lot of people were sexually abused by an adult who knew exactly what they were doing, who had groomed them, who had prepared them um, without them even knowing that they were going to take advantage of them. What's important is to look at how did these events affect you? And I know for me that it awakened a lot of sexual desire probably very early for me early much earlier than it ever should have been there's this one quote from your book that i underlined and circled and i have been thinking about it ever since i read it okay you said in regards to early sexual awakening that exposure to pornography at an age before the brain is ready to process sexual information is a form of sexual abuse. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, think if you took a baby who can only drink milk or drink breast milk and you started pushing a piece of steak down its throat, what do you think would happen? That baby would choke. It it could be fatal for that baby your sexual template is no different. Your sexuality and your sexual template is supposed to gradually unfold through maturation. And when you get something from an adult level thrown at you, it's like shoving steak down a baby's throat. Your mind is not ready to process that. You don't know what you're looking at. You don't know what you're seeing. You don't understand what's going on. And often those early sexual experiences are coupled with a high degree of emotion. And when you have emotion with risk and shock, the hippocampus, which is the thing that converts short-term long memory into long-term memory, it's like stamping that into your brain. And that's where you talk about imprinting. Yes. So here you start your sexual template with a ton of information that you didn't gradually learn. It's like throwing a bunch of paint on paint on a white canvas very quickly. And it just awakens things in you that you're not ready for, that you can't process, 
And also the research shows if we begin any addictive type behavior or substance by the age of 14, that we are more than likely going to have a lifelong struggle with that issue because of the way it affects your template, not just sexual template, but all kinds of templates that we have in our heads about life experiences. Yeah, our formation and our deformation. Right. It takes place disproportionately at younger ages. Absolutely. So when porn is part of that story from a young age, it's inherently abusive. Inherently abusive. And one of the major insights I gained from your story is that even if I had an experience with another boy or another little girl, and maybe that little boy or that little girl didn't sexually abuse me, it could be sexual abuse by an adult without contact, even if I don't see it that way. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we have to break down abuse into contact and non-contact abuse because of the internet now and webcams and, you know, social media. And that has to be broken down into, into two forms. Yeah. So let's break it down as much as possible, Doug. What is your definition of sexual abuse? That is a hard question, and I'm going to back up a little bit and give you a couple of things. Number one, to simplify it, and this is my definition for any abuse, and this isn't original for me. I got this from Claudia Black and uh, uh, Pia Melody uh, in some of their early work. They define abuse as anything that's less than nurturing, and I loved that definition of abuse. And it also applies to sexual abuse. When something sexual happens to you before your mind and for your body is physically ready for that, that's abuse. That is abuse. I mean, I've had men um, who've come to me who feel like uh, they've had, they've suffered a form of abuse by having to share bedrooms when they were kids with older siblings and having to watch them change clothes, you know, and just being exposed to the male body and then growing up with an affinity toward wanting to look at other men, wanting to see other men nude. And it came from just being in a bedroom with an older brother who was way more much physically mature than you are. Right. And that's why what matters most is not necessarily the forensic objective details of what happened, but how is it impacting you? Exactly. So I think each of us have to read books such as the one I've written or other books that are out there. And you have to figure out for yourself, were you sexually abused or not? By whatever your definition of that abuse is and how it impacted you. Another thing that I wanted to throw out there is the research also shows that 25% of adolescent boys will engage in some type of same-sex behavior. It is because of pure curiosity. It is out of experimentation. It is out of, I want to see what this feels like. It's out of a desire for sexual gratification, not out of sexual harm. 
And those situations often are consensual, like we're, we're going to agree to do this with each other or we're going to agree to touch each other and see how it feels. Um, and, and sometimes there's no abuse around that. It, it is just curiosity and experimentation and it's consensual. And, and that's not considered abuse, but you have to make that determination for yourself. In my situation, I ultimately felt like it was abuse because of all the emotions that were attached to it, what it awoke in me, and then how I responded to it for the next several years. Abuse can be contact or non-contact. Absolutely. Of course, contact abuse is when someone is, is touching you. Maybe someone is there showing you pornography. Um, you know, anytime you're touched, that's contact abuse. Non-contact abuse is usually, like I said before, something social media related, being exposed to pornography, maybe even inadvertently. This has changed a lot over the years. Uh, my dissertation back in 1997, when I wrote it, came about because there was such a huge disparity in sexual abuse laws across all 50 states. And that started with every state has a different definition of what sexual abuse, what constitutes sexual abuse. So I looked at all, there was a total of 250 laws on the books at that point across all 50 states. And I looked at them on eight different variables and then proposed a working standardized definition. But part of the problem is we can't come to an agreement on a definition of sexual abuse. Like I said, every state has a different one. Like back then, Hawaii had one of the most lenient definitions of sexual abuse, while other states had a very stringent. The age of consent differs in every state. So there's all these different variables that go into an actual working definition of sexual abuse. And it's different. Right. So the legal question of whether or not something is sexual abuse is very different from the question for your personal healing and freedom. Absolutely. And that's what we're talking about today. And that's what's important, how it impacts you as an individual and your development, your relationship with God, you know, all aspects of who you are as a person. How did it impact you? And it could even be the boy who was called a daughter by his father. I mean, that is abusing that little boy's sexuality. It is. It's an emotional abuse of, of his gender and his sex and who he is and his own development. And how does that play into his sexual identity? Does he start telling himself, you know, maybe I should have been born a girl. My dad doesn't think I'm a boy. He thinks I'm a girl. He thinks I'm a sissy. I, I can't live up to his expectation. Is there something wrong with me physically? Does he think I look like a girl? You know, it, it can start all those false narratives that begin that interfere with the, the appropriate development of that sexual template. It could even just be the sexual energy of a mother who's using her son as a replacement husband or invasively kissing or touching in a way that feels icky. Yeah. I love how your book talks about the yuck factor. That's such an important one. When we're asking this question, was I sexually abused? Well, what about the yuck factor? That is so important. The yuck factor comes from a, a lady in uh, Tennessee, Melissa Bradley Ball, who is a big researcher in this area. And she talks about if, if you 
had an experience happen to you and your feeling inside is yuck, this, that was yucky, that was abuse. You were experiencing some kind of violation that was having an impact. Yeah. And I loved what you said from Claudia Black and Pia Melody, anything less than nurturing. Right. You know, I, I have tried to develop sexuality in my kids in a, a very healthy manner. I didn't avoid the topic. I taught them age appropriate content as they grew. I answered their questions as they grew. I, I informed them about types of touch. Here's something that the research shows. And uh, I interviewed 13 men for the book and their live stories are a part of the book and the examples. Parents educate their sons about stranger danger, but they don't educate them about sexual abuse. We educate our little girls about it. Stay in the light. Don't walk in dark places. Don't walk away from mom and dad at the mall, blah, blah, blah. We don't talk about types of touch with boys. We talk about stranger danger so you don't get kidnapped. But we don't educate you about your body. And, and I made sure with my son from a very small age to talk to him about his body. And that nobody touches you here except the doctor or dad if there's something wrong with you. And you're trying, you're coming to me saying something's wrong, dad. Those are the only two people who are allowed to touch this besides you. And I tell, I told my kids too, that if anybody tries to touch you there or does touch you there, you just come and tell me that's an adult issue and daddy will go take care of it. Absolutely. We have to educate our kids. We have to prepare them, especially with all this online stuff. Now you can't just talk about the physical aspect. You have to talk about, you know, you're, that you're going to come across things online that aren't appropriate for you either. Good pictures and bad pictures. Good pictures and bad pictures. And, you know, I talk a lot about the research because I, I read, I'm a voracious reader. I just read, read, read. And I read hundreds of articles about sexual abuse in writing this book. And the research shows right now, studies are coming out all over the place that a first, a uh, the first exposure to porn or something uh, online is anywhere from eight to 11. It was at 11 and it's starting to decrease more. And now we're seeing studies that it's, it's really starting to fall more in the eight and nine range where kids inadvertently come across something or somebody soliciting them. So you have to talk to your kids about the possibility of contact abuse and non-contact abuse. One of the reasons why it can be so hard to come to a conclusion about was I sexually abused is that most abusers are not strangers. They have a position of authority. There's somebody who you trust. There's somebody who you love. And that makes it all the more confusing, especially if that person used their position of trust to make it seem like, the kid wanted this. Right. Well, and that, that gets into a lot of specifics too, because there are two categories of abuse in relation to that. One is called intrafamilial and one is called extrafamilial. Well, intra is when, when a known family member, an uncle, cousin, 
dad, mother, sister, uncle, um, or a person in authority, like a clergy person or a coach, um, when they violate you or have some kind of sexual abuse with you, that's called intrafamilial. Extrafamilial is when it's somebody completely outside of the family who doesn't have any type of authority over you, like maybe the neighbor. Okay, so those are two types of abuse. You have to understand, this did not just happen to you. You know, for for many years when I was younger, even when I started in the field of psychology, it was kind of like you tell people, um, well, it's just because you were there. It doesn't have anything to do about you. This person had these urges. They have this illness and you just happen to be there. No, <laughs> it didn't just happen. These people are cunning manipulators. They groom you or other kids to be able to abuse you. Dr. Um, Michael Wellner is a, a very well-known um, researcher. I think he's out of the University of New York, uh, New York University. And he came up with the six stages of grooming that I outlined very specifically in the book. But those stages walk you through exactly how they lure you in as a child. And there's so much manipulation before you ever get to stage five, which is where the sexual abuse actually occurs. And part of that is convincing you to think that it was your idea. Absolutely. You know, you got an erection when you saw that Playboy magazine on my coffee table. I had to show you how to get rid of it. Those are the kind of things that how they tell kids it's their fault. You responded to this. You asked me a question. I saw you looking. You enjoyed this. You came back for more. And those are some of the false narratives. Absolutely. Doug, what's one of those false narratives from your life that you've been able to rewrite? Well, the big one, I think, was that I wasn't sexually abused. And the more I got into this and the more I looked at some of the things that were going on inside my own life and struggles that I was having, I was like, this absolutely was abuse. Just because my friend was the same age as me, the way it impacted me was abuse. It was sexual abuse. And so I've had to rewrite that narrative, you know, and I've also had to rewrite the narrative that, well, my, I got an erection when he touched me. I, I must enjoy being with a man, a female, a male. Because why did my body do that? Your body's going to respond to stimulation. That's the way God designed the male body to be. Your body does not, this is a, a good line. This is one of my favorite lines in my book. <laughs> Your body does not know the difference between abuse and intimacy. If someone is stimulating your penis, it is going to get erect. That is what God designed it to do. Whether it's a man or a woman. Your body is going to respond to touch. Your body in and of itself doesn't know if that's abuse or love or intimacy. It is a physiological response 
It's a stimulus and a response. It's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. It's us as individuals with our own minds and our, our mental capabilities that write a narrative to go along with that. That is often false. You know, husband material is all about getting over pornography, but I, I think it's from these false narratives that you write about yourself that is part of your draw to whatever type of pornography you like as well. Because, you know, you might start thinking, well, my body responded, so I must like to watch gay porn. I must like the thought of two men interacting because my body responded this way. And now when I see this, my body still responds. I enjoy it. I want to see it. Being aroused by something does not mean I like it, does not mean I enjoy it. Those are two completely different things. Completely. I have a whole section in the book where we talk about the difference between sexual arousal and sexual desire. Sexual arousal is something that's conditioned. Your body responds to sexual touch. Your brain connects whatever touched you to that event with pleasure that my body responded, it becomes conditioned. We can become conditioned to be aroused to a lot of things. That's the whole foundation of all these different kind of fetishes that exist. There's been an, an, a, a pairing, an association of two things that maybe don't really even belong together, but somehow they became paired. They became conditioned, and now you're aroused by that. Sexual desire is something completely different. Sexual desire is what your heart longs for. Amen. What your mind and body and heart long for. How do you want to connect to that other person? And to what sex do you want to connect with? Even though you might be aroused by men, you may be aroused by gay pornography, your arousal is completely different than your desire. You know, that's where we get, you know, same-sex attraction that's un unwanted. You know, all, all the behaviors in Jay Stringer's book about unwanted, those were all things that you became conditioned to. Those went on your arousal template. And it's not even limited to that. It's also for men who might be attracted to older women. It's also for men who might be attracted to minors. Absolutely. Yeah, it's for men like me who might have a, a fetish for a specific object or like type of appliance or, or clothing or even something as seemingly normal as having a thing for miniskirts. All of that comes down to this sexual response cycle that you talk about in your book. And it's just so helpful. That was my favorite part of the book, too. Okay. <laughs> You know, it makes, it makes me think of a really interesting story. And it's been so many years since I treated this individual. So it's a little foggy for me, but he used to work on the farm with his dad, who was a very rough and rugged and hard, hard man. And the only time he saw his dad as vulnerable is when they would stop and get off the tractor and go pee out in the field together. Hmm. That was the only time he felt like his dad was like vulnerable with him. And so he developed a fetish for men urinating. Well, that totally was a conditioned response 
because at that point from, from father wounding, he was trying to find a way to connect with dad in his most vulnerable moment. And that just happened to be all about when we urinate together. That's a complete association and an arousal pattern. It has nothing to do with your desire for who you want to connect with on a loving level. And that is just one of the different ways sexual abuse can impact us. You talk about eight different ways sexual abuse can impact us in your book. It's more than arousal. It's a lot more than that. And we are going to go into this actually because... Doug Carpenter will be leading our upcoming virtual retreat on healing from sexual abuse. You all got a great taste of what we'll be talking about. It's going to be February 25th through 27th. We are going to meet on Friday night, two times on Saturday, and then Sunday morning, going really deep to help you go from naming the ways that you were a victim to honoring yourself as a survivor, and then becoming a thriver. Yes, I'm so excited about this. This, I'm passionate about a lot of things, and I was passionate about my first book, but this, this book has been six years in the making. This is my birthing process. This, this is my baby that I want to, to put out there for men. Um, there's such a, an absence of resources for men who have been abused and programs and curriculum for men who have been abused. There's such an absence of that. You know, in my 25 years of working with men around sexual trauma, I just could not find a resource that I was like, you have to read this book. And and finally, over the years, I just thought, I'm going to write one. I'm just going to write one. And so I spent the last six years writing this, reading all kinds of research, and I can't wait for this seminar and to be able to share all the things that I've learned with all of you and to, to not, even, not just help you understand the abuse, but to how to find healing. What are the steps for healing? And, and, and I want you to know this isn't something I just dreamed up. I have done tons of research about what are the necessary steps that have been scientifically proven to help men walk out of this trauma and become a thriver. And I can't wait to share it. And if you come to this retreat, you will not just listen to a bunch of information. You will take those steps. Absolutely. We have a team of trained leaders who will be in small groups of five participants each giving you all the space and time you need with encouragement, with support, with validation, with empathy to actually do the work of healing. It's time for you to tell your story, especially if you're one of these people who have held on to it for a quarter of a century. It is time for you to find your voice and to let your secret shame out. It's, it's not yours to carry. It's a burden that you are carrying, that it's time to change your narrative and change the burden that you're carrying. Doug, what is it like for you now to be living in that freedom? For me, it was working through my sexual abuse and understanding how that connected to the types of pornography I wanted to look at, 
what my sexual desires were. And, and I can honestly tell you that once I worked through that, those desires drastically changed for me. It's because now when I think about turning to porn or looking up porn, I see it through this lens of trauma and I see it for what it really is. And I see it for sexual arousal, not sexual desire and my desire. Like I, I don't, of course, do I enjoy looking at porn? Yep. My flesh would enjoy that, but I just see it totally different now. And I don't have a strong urge for it because I understand it now. Doug, one time you put it so powerfully to me. You said, porn is the way we keep our abuse alive. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> the research, again, I'm always going back to the research. It calls it post-traumatic play. We are traumatized by an event and we go back to what feels familiar. And we turn to porn to find those familiarities. And then we play in it. We search for the next video. We look for what's the next craziest thing. Or I want to see if this person had the reaction I had when I experienced this. It's post-traumatic play. Pornography just keeps our trauma alive. Just keeps it alive. So when you can rewrite the story of your life and you can see clearly whatever abuse is there, sexual or not, pornography, it takes a whole different color to it because you realize, I don't want to keep that abuse alive. Well, it's funny now because when I think of using pornography, I get the yuck factor. Yeah, exactly. Because the yuck factor is all connected to my abuse. And the type of porn that I was using was very much connected to my abuse. It was gay porn. And now when I think of that, I feel that yuck factor inside of me, which causes me to then just want to turn away from it. And that has allowed you to break up with the sexually abusive partner that is pornography. Absolutely. And, and I... I believe this can happen for other people. If it can happen for me, if I can come to these realizations through, you know, all, all the research that I've done, I want to share that with you so that way you can experience that. I want to help you rewrite your narrative about who you are so you can experience freedom from porn and any other unwanted behavior that you have conditioned yourself to become aroused to. And we have so, so many ways that you guys can access that. You can get Doug's book. You can join the Husband Material community where we are having these conversations in a free, safe environment. And you can even sign up for the upcoming retreat on healing sexual abuse with Doug, me, and a team of awesome leaders. Doug, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. This is fire. Yes, I can't, I can't wait. I'm just totally stoked for the end of February. While we're on the topic of rewriting false narratives, reclaiming who you are and taking back your life, always remember that you are God's beloved son and in you, he is well pleased. Mm-hmm.